Podcastle, episode 193, for January 24th, 2012. Fruit Jar Drinkin' Cheatin' Heart Blues by Patty Templeton. Rated R. Contains some strong language, some violence, and some pretty stiff drinking. Bottoms up. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson and we've got a hoot of a story for you today about bootleggers, lawmen, broken hearts, and dare I say it, yes, a dash of steampunk. There are two things I love about steampunk these days. First, how diverse the subgenre is becoming, and second, how, given that diversity, there's plenty of room for authors to let their hair down and just have fun. Fun being a relative term, obviously. Uh, Especially when lesbian bootlegging heartbreakers are involved. Or, you know, involved. But before we get to our story, a little administrative announcement. With our big 200th episode coming right down the road, we thought we'd put a call out for fan art. If you're an artist and the stories that we've featured here have inspired you, we'd love to see your work, whether it be for an individual story we've run, or something that you feel captures the overall spirit of Podcastle. And if you want to take a shot at that tentacle castle floating through the sky, more power to you. Send them over to us at editor at podcastle.org. We'll try to find a wall or someplace to post them. Thanks, and we're looking forward to it. This week at Podcastle, we're proud to serve up Fruit Jar Drinkin' Cheatin' Heart Blues by Patty Templeton and originally published in Steam Powered 2, More Lesbian Steampunk Stories. Patty Templeton is a writer and a reader's advisor at a Chicagoland library, and her work has also appeared at Rosebud Magazine. In 2010, she won the first ever Naked Girls Reading Literary Honors Award, and has been a runner-up for the Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley Award. When not blogging at pattytemplton.livejournal.com, she can most often be found doing one of three things, writing, reading, or stomping around at rock and roll shows. My buddy M.K. Hobson's going to be taking you to the mountaintop for a taste of that old moonshine this week. She really doesn't need an introduction here, but what the hell. If you haven't checked out her novels, The Native Star and The Hidden Goddess, you're missing out. And yes, they are available in audio. You can find her online at dimemonde.com. So last call before we oil the creepers and walkers. Enjoy the story. Fruit Jar Drinking Cheatin' Heart Blues by Patty Templeton 1914 Up the Mountain 1. Notes in Rotgut Woods Rotgut Woods was a pox on the mountain. It was thick, deep, and the birch, beech, and oak brawled each other for root room and light. Moss and clover covered what the kudzu did not. Steep drops, snakes, and strangleweed, that's all the rotgut was good for. Well, that and moonshine. Not one man wanted to travel the wood, but a pair of women lived there. Casey Tipple and Balma Walker were two of the finest bootleggers for a godstep or more, the only two that lived in the rot gut instead of on its edge. Balma hadn't always hated the sour, sorrowing guts out of Casey, but times had changed with the rain. Ten years and a piece with the same two hearts in a three-room cabin, and there's bound to be here and there altercations. Balma'd call Casey a no-good jar-tipper, and Casey'd have a sip and a swallow, and name Balma a brain-big hollering bitch. 
Bauman would throw the grits and biscuits at Casey in the frying pan after. Casey'd bite a brushed-off biscuit and tell Balma how fine it was. Fairly soon, the two were hot eyes over hot coffee, and the stills would have to wait until the sheets had another ruffle and wet. But this time, Casey done enough wrong for Balma to prop the grudge on a pulpit and preach. It was Balma that started sending words through the rot gut. She tacked a letter to the hollow oak that held Casey's recently thoroughly busted mason jars. Casey Tipple, you are no good. It is not your fault you were born of low people and have become such yourself. Even so, I do not want you any more. As for your clothing, I burned all and spread the ashes in my garden. With the regard one gives a jackass, Balma Walker. Casey was not a woman to let a struggle stand one-legged. Balma locked Casey out of the cabin two weeks prior, roaring, You want to act uglier than dirt? Sleep in it. But all it took was a rock through the window for Casey to crawl back in, which she did, a high noon when she knew Balma to be doing mechanical preservations at her cliffside workshop. As Balma shoved tweezers and a rag into a copper creeper with whirring vertebrates and oil leak and sad eyes, Casey split, shred, and spoiled multiple designs for metal leg joints, fireproof keg coatings, and an alcohol-burning miniature engine. Casey tore apart every patent and plan Balma had that wasn't cliffside. She ripped and rent till her fingers bled and her eyes went to water. She made a nest of the paper around a cracked jug that contained a note. I pitched your quilt to the quarry and sold your ma's ring to in-town Bodie. Your jug shed's done for. I still love you, you bitch. Piss up a rope if you don't believe me. See, Casey and Balma so diligently vexed one another that neither sold whiskey. That left Snake Oil Pete and his vile firewater. Folks proximate, the rot gut grieved. Pete's liquor hadn't always been grease jar awful. Not until he got it under his hat to have a walking still and his mind divided betwixt making a walker and watching his mash. Casey and Balma didn't hold a cup of concern about Pete. He wasn't what you'd call a wrench in hand sort of man. And his best inventive effort was a wooden monstrosity that belched fire and burned itself down two sways into the rot gut. Townies hankered for Casey's apple pie moonshine and what they wouldn't do for a bottle of Balma's clear coat. But Balma wasn't making clear coat. She was boiling over the lunatic mutilation of her papers. What was left of Balma's last run went to bribe the cane man. Casey received salt instead of sugar on her monthly supply trip. Balma stowed away words in one of the hundred-pound sacks. Casey, were the world to love you as I do, it'd be a flame and a useless core in a matter of days. I'd eat your dead before I accepted your love, my disingenuous darling. Bathe. I can still smell your putrescence in my home two days past. Balma. Casey hadn't had to taste her sugar for eight years. Eight years of handshakes and almost friendship with the cane man, and now she was going to have to crack him in his one good ear. All this for a handful of minutes of necking with a fiddle player. It was eighty acres of hell to bring off, and only the threat of the sledge stopped each still from high-stepping long enough for Casey to shimmy up a leg, but a teaspoon of salt went into each of Balma's three walkers. Then, with copper creepers throwing creek mud at her, Casey poured every hundred-pound bag of salt into Balma's favorite watering hole. There, Casey painted tall words onto the rock wall, stone-hearted. Balma was cranky when she didn't get to bathe. She made plans in the bath, thought, scheduled, invented. Her ace ideas manifested when she soaked. She'd converted the whole town from cold alcohol energy in a four-hour bath. The bottom of the rock gut was the only all-electric town in Kentucky, cheap alcohol electric at that. 
alcohol power. Yes, sir, so those bootlegging broads can take your monies, snake oil Pete had said, trying to plant a resentment weed. But townies had lower cost heating and lighting this away than they had with Candletown coal, and those broads founded a public library to boot. And now, Balma's thinking spot was a saltwater ruin. Revenge came in the form of a marsupial. Casey's possum, Tick, had tiptoed through the swing door into Balma's kitchen and snuffled out a pocket knife and three biscuits before Balma noticed his game of fetch. Tick was not hard to catch. He was half drunk and smelled of sourdough, an odor that meant Casey was back to work. Balma tied a note to Tick's neck, written on the back of a tintype of Casey with her eyes poked out, wearing a crochet slouch hat and a dirty summer dress. Miss Tipple. If we are to speak of lackings, how about your utter abridgment of decency? I am not the one who took up with another woman. Your moral poverty appalls me. Go to the devil if even she'll take you. Miss Balma Walker. Casey got to drinking after she saw that tintype. She swigged back and gave Tick a gulp. Tick wavered and swayed, and Casey followed right after. All night it went on. Casey'd pretend she was stumbling to one of her own three stills to watch the fires and check the water supply, but it was always to get another jug. Casey thought on Balma, on herself. Casey didn't know why she drank so much. Didn't know why she didn't quit. Didn't know why she tore Balma's patents apart. Didn't know why she saw stupid Mari's long neck and wanted to bite it. Then did. Why a good steady time was never enough. The morning brought sore calves from walking half the mountain. Then the remembrances of beaten Tick in a foot race, crying about Balma's hair and heaving into a flower garden of unknown origin, which meant she'd made it into town and back. Casey didn't remember anything about the postmaster's place or the snake. When Balma had received her gears, pumps, pistons, and underpants from Sears and Roebuck, there was a snake hide therein. Casey had crookedly stitched onto the hide, did it for us, B. Sometimes Balma lost her words. This was usually when the grits were thrown. Balma found one word and carved it into Casey's biggest still, liar. It was not only Casey's biggest still, it was the one she'd made with her daddy before he'd been sent upriver and died in a riot. Casey didn't lose her words when she got angry. She shared them. She painted on the trees leading into town one word per trunk, guard your heart against bleak Balma. Two tin lizzies and a man on a horse brought the news into town. Folks gave a collective sigh, knowing apple pie moonshine was not near and coming. Casey made liquor again, but it wasn't the good stuff. It was barely better than snake oil peats. Balma felt bad about the still. Yes, Casey was a deceitful, foul, no-good, gorgeous woman, but everyone should have something left of their kin, and Balma had carved gaping letter holes into all Casey had. It was too much. Balma hadn't greased the walkers or examined the creepers in a fortnight. She hadn't done a full run and double that. Balma was tired of being furious, tired of being tired. Balma's last note was sent with a deacon she knew to buy a weekly jug from Casey. I refuse to continue this correspondence. I refuse to believe you kissed that girl out of diligence. I know who she is, and I know you wanted to. I can't keep loving you. Casey Tipple read the note. The deacon walked away with his jug. A man was meant for four walls and a roof, near other people with four walls and a roof. He knew better than to stand too close to the rot gut for too long. Casey pressed the letter edges to her lips, places where Balma might have touched. Then she put a match to the bottom and dropped it. 
The deacon ran back and stomped out the fire before it could spread. He wanted to keep his four walls and a roof. Casey went up the mountain to find Balma. 2. Don't walk where you don't belong. Sheriff Sig Sultan was alone in Rotgut Woods. Sig was a voluntary solitaire. He told the government men to stay back. I'll fire a shot if it's worth the raid, he'd said. The tax man looked at the rot gut, tip-itched his nose with a silk handkerchief, and decided that if the rube cop wanted his first crack at chopping copper or palm and Franklin's, fine. Even if reason could account for how blackish the forest looked on a sweat-slick summer day, it doubtfully could derive why the trees shifted out of the corner of your eye. For Fifth Avenue, our told Marcus could not figure out why all these hill savages didn't move to the city like civilized human beings. Artold stayed by the touring car with his two men. Any Ford could run on kerosene, petrol, or ethanol, but one of the hayseeds had fiddled with the fliver to gain 30 miles per gallon by the use of a specific local ethanol. Ten miles over standard use. Quite fantastic. It was two steps of deception that took Sig Sultan into the woods alone. For one, Sig wasn't carrying an axe to bust a still. He was going to chop the tits off that walking trash, Casey Tipple. There wasn't much flesh under those overalls, but Sig was going to slice those titties off and wrap them in a box for Mari. Tell her, fine, fine, you want to put your lips on a woman in the middle of a damn roadhouse? This is what daddy does when he hears. For two, Sig hadn't a cat's tail clue where any stills were in rock gut woods, and he wasn't about to concede that to a city pants government man. There were six, according to town talk. Six. And they walked which Sig would believe when he saw. Sig had rambled the whole mountain and hadn't sighted a path or even a cast-off sugar sack. Checked the creeks, walked the caves. He'd spent whole days whiffing around, waiting for the hog pen or hot bread smell. Nothing. Sig couldn't even find the shack where the whores homed. All he'd seen was snake oil peats junk piles near the edge of the rot gut, near 15 and all. But Sig known about those already, knew where Pete's two working stills were, been paid by Pete already. It was a skipped blank blessing that Sig'd seen the shift and the glint a mile up the mountain. Sig knew the shine of a copper pot still when he saw one, even if it was eight feet off the ground. So the stills did walk, so what? Didn't mean those girlies were smarter than him, just that they got clever and even a bitch could learn a trick or two. But that had been five miles back. Five miles of uphill grunting black ivy and leaves that had no business falling in the middle of August. The axe was heavy on Sig's shoulder. He dropped it to shift his pants up, take his hat off, and fan himself. There was a squeak in the brush. Sig dropped the hat and grabbed his colt. A flitty copper critter, about knee-high, dropped a paw full of leaves and ran from an oak's shadow to a clump of rocks. Ah, no you don't, Sig muttered and kneeled to aim better. He could flatten the copper and sell it down the mountain. There were a series of squeaks behind Sig, but he kept his eyes on the copper creeper that had ducked into the rock pile. Sig squeezed the trigger. The critter bleated from the dark hole. Sig shoved his hand in after. This was not the proper action. There was a whizzing hiss and then a prick. Sig flung his arm out of the black. The critter hung from him, a needle pinning it to Sig's wrist bone. It made a high-pitched, ticking keen. Sig keened back. A needle in his damn wrist, in his wrist! Sig shook his arm. The copper critter wrapped spindle limbs tight from palm edge to elbow. Sig's head held a thunderstorm. There were more creepers in the trees. The axe was an easy grab. Sig raised the blunt edge to the copper fella's face. It glared at him, let go, then ran. 
Sig threw the axe, badly. He felt woozy, but he still knocked the creature's legs out. Going somewhere? The copper creeper whined. Oil poured out of its stumps. Sig cracked his neck to each side. He'd heard city folk talk about headaches and thought they were Nancy and out of work. Maybe not. Sig took a deep breath and closed his eyes. It felt like someone had taken a sad iron to his skull. The leaves rustled and Sig didn't notice. He took another breath all the way down, winking his bunghole. The critter quit bleating. Sig's head didn't clear. But what was he going to do? Crawl up into a ball and pass out in the forest with a job undone? Sig poked at the stumps. Quality plate work. Probably something that Balma made. If there was one, maybe there'd be more. Copper creepers glinted around Sig under the leaves. Sig didn't notice. Where's your ma'am live? The little fella hissed. Fine. Sig lifted the axe. Pieces would fit better in his satchel. A walking still backed up between the trees. Sig looked for the cause of the dirt shuffling. Furnace, thump keg, and everything else all tidied into what looked like a giant's wash tub on spider legs. Sig refused to be impressed. Then twenty creepers leapt on him. They sunk in their sleeper needles before the axe dropped. Sig flailed, but he didn't feel anything. Couldn't feel a damn thing. And then he fell. When the fat man went dormant, the creepers tied him to the still and dragged him to their ma'am. 3. What the Creepers Dragged In Balma was on a stool underneath a still, tinkering. She smacked its belly hatch closed and wiped a sludge chunk from one leg. Another walker stood drying from a bath with copper creepers lounging in its shade. All the walkers were big large enough to hold a 50-gallon still, furnace, thump keg, water box, and all. Each had an extra water tank, an air scrubber for whitewash and black smoke, and they'd walk the mountains on a prearranged path. Balm had once seen an automatic piano roll and expanded on the idea of preset directions. A sheriff can't find a still if it's ever wandering, and a taxman can't follow tracks so long as her copper creepers covered them. Get your nose out of that metal ass, Casey said. What are you doing here? Balma turned around. Here was Balma's cliffside workshop, a tool shed and an open-air table. There was a Kentucky hill drop to one side and forest lion horseshoeing the rest. We need to trade words, Casey said. She tossed a bunch of daisies at Balma's stool. No. Can I talk? No, Balma stepped down, crushing the flowers. Casey backed up a step. Always thought you're pretty when you're mad. And I think you're lower than a dog's asshole. You're being unreasonable. Unreasonable, Balma yelled and crossed the distance between them. Balma never felt unreasonable unless someone told her she was being such, and then she felt it was her obligation to demonstrate the genuine definition. Honey doll. You do not get to call me honey doll. Not sugar, not dear. You lost the privilege to call me anything. To say anything. Balma was breathless. She shoved Casey. We still have something, Casey said, as she tried to catch Balma's hand. No, no, we do not, Balma twisted away. We may have before Mari. We may have before you started drinking more than you sell. Maybe before whatever the girl's name was before this one. Sue, I hate you. I'll quit drinking. Balma picked up her walking stick. No, you won't. What Balma meant to do was walk away. It didn't mean a dang thing, Casey said. Then why'd you do it, Case, huh? Why? I... Balma swung her walking stick. Casey ducked. Balma swung again. 
Casey yelled, I love you, girl, as she bobbed behind an oak. Balma's walking stick split in two against the tree instead of Casey's neck. Then I still hate you, Casey stepped out. No, you don't. Balma threw one of the stick ends at Casey. You're making it hard to be sorry. Casey caught the stick and threw it over the side of the mountain. Balma thought on nimble 19-year-old Mari Sultan. Mari with her raven hair, Mari who didn't have smudged cheeks or crow's feet, Mari with her clean fingernails and her fiddle. How Balma and Casey danced so hard that night, sat in the rockers out front of the drink joint, watched the stars, and Balma had even thought, this is it. This is happy. Balma went to do some selling, and in the 30 minutes it took, Casey'd cozied up to Mari. Balma knew Casey'd tip back enough to kill a dinosaur, and it didn't matter this time. Balma swung the smaller half of the walking stick. It cracked Casey on the forearm. Casey didn't fall. She didn't step back. She grabbed the stick, yanked, and had a hold of Balma by the back of the neck. She pulled Balma's forehead to hers. I was drunk, Casey said. You're always drunk. A group of copper creepers threw sticks at Casey's back. She told me the government men were coming today. Did she, darling? What time? Oh, wait, I don't care. It was for us, Casey said, but she couldn't look Balma in the eyes. Why? Balma put her fingers around Casey's neck. I spent how many days, how many years under the bellies of metal beasts so we didn't have to worry about such things? Balma pressed at Casey's throat and Casey let her. We haven't had a problem with Sig or a federal man since before the stills started strutting. And only then, when you burned down the southern corner of the rot gut on a bender... Casey pulled Balma onto her lips. Balma stumbled back. It wasn't even as good as that, Casey said. It doesn't matter. I don't want her. I don't care. I want you. You had me. Balma spit in the dirt at Casey's feet. Balma's third still staggered out of the rot gut for maintenance. Only its step was weighted wrong. The copper creeper swerved and hummed behind it. They bypassed the still, sprinted to Balma, and clambered at her knees. The several that couldn't crowd in to touch their ma'am kicked dirt at Casey. Casey kicked dirt back at them. What the hell they swelled up about, Casey asked. Balma walked to the still. Shit, she said. Casey went to have a look. Double shit! Sheriff Sig Sultan was loose-tied to the back of the still by one arm. Brambles and blood, clothes, scrub scraped. There was a legless copper creeper choking the knocked-out sheriff with his own tie. It saw Balma and held out its arms to be picked up. Balma gathered it and laid it out on the table with affection. We'll fix you. It blinked at her and nodded. Balma went back to the still. The copper creeper's sleeping needles were meant for small animals, not people. Keeping squirrels off the stills. Stopping birds from nesting. Punishing Tick for trying to get at the mash. Not for pricking shiftless lawmen. There wasn't enough poison to keep a person down for long. It'd take more than 70 stings, and from the look of him, Sig had had about 30. Sig's eyes fluttered. He saw the hazy countenance of Casey Tipple. The colt was in Sig's hand, and Myrie's brown eyes in his mind. Balma saw the gun and kicked Sig in the mouth. She was barefoot and broke a toe. Sig smiled broken teeth and fired. Casey took the bullet in her shoulder. Balma put a steadying hand on the still and brought her heel down on Sig's neck. He dropped the gun. The copper creepers threw rocks at the sheriff. One stole the gun from Sig's side. He coughed blood. Well, Balma asked. Straight through, Casey said. I hope it festers, Balma said. But she picked the denim out of the wound. 
You're a long look a pretty when you fester, girl. Bowman looked from Casey down to Sig. Don't you try to sweet-talk me, Casey Tipple. You can't do it. The forest line crackled. Hold it right there. R told Marcus, and two Federals stepped out of the woods. R told suit was irritatingly dirty. It had snagged when he and the boys ran after the first shot and sped up at the second. Sig babbled his daughter's name. Balma flicked her wrist. The copper creepers ran into the woods. R told and his agents didn't try to stop them. This ain't what it seems, Casey said. You are under arrest. For what, sir? Balma tried to ask innocently, but her right foot was red and Sig's spit freckled her frayed work dress and vest pockets. Tax evasion, assault, kidnapping. R told nudged his gun. Cuff them. One agent pocketed a pint of birch bark whiskey. The other handcuffed Balma, then Casey. Neither fought. Mari, said Sig. His head lolled and body slumped as a federal cut him down from the walker. Mari was in the process of hitchhiking out of Kentucky. Sig would never see her again. That why we couldn't find you hillbillies? Artold asked. He stared up at the legged still. It's big, heavy. Why aren't there tracks? Why would I tell you? Balma asked. Artold held the gun higher as if that was an answer. Balma shoved her chin out to match. You make those two spider still creatures? He asked Balma. Yeah, she did. About to add a rifle mount. Late for that now. Casey shrugged her shoulders. Take a last look, ladies, and move it. It's a long walk to my automobile. No, Casey said. Artold backhanded her. Casey spit blood on his pant leg. The copper creepers hissed from the woods. Artold Marcus considered the consequences of tossing the two sapphic bitches off the cliff and letting the sheriff croak. A fine? Demotion? Take enough to cover the damages to my suit, he told his men. One nodded as he prodded Sig with his wingtip. The other shook out a sack and filled it with liquor bottles. Balma hated him. All of them hated being caught by a bow-tied taxman and his two lump-headed, non-talker hatchet boys. Walk or I shoot her, Artold pointed the gun at Balma. Casey walked without another word. So did Balma. They were ten steps into the rot gut when the chopping started. Two more when Balma's workshed was set on fire. It contained seven volumes of patents and six volumes of further blueprints. Balma didn't cry. Casey balled her fists. The copper creepers howled. Four. Can't keep a good woman down, let alone two. Casey stood up from kneeling. Balma cracked a rock with her sledge and hadn't noticed Casey crawling in the gravel. She was thinking about her creepers, about making new stills, about how Sig Sultan somehow walked out of it alive, and really that should have made her happy because the prison sentence was shorter, but it didn't. Balma thought about Snake Oil Pete taking over their trade back in the holler, about limestone. Balma was sick of thinking about limestone and dolomite. The quarry was deep, but the women weren't deep in it. Casey cracked a rock. Her shoulders still hurt. Balma slammed a stone three steps over. Both were chained together at the ankle with a leash staked into the access road by the officer's Model T. He wasn't looking at them. He never did. Not for the month they'd been there. With a hundred men a pit over, why should he be watching two useless, sunburned women? Would it help if I told you she kissed me? Casey asked. No. Casey busted a rock. What about saying your hair is softer? No. Balma busted a rock. How about if I say I'm tired of missing you when you're standing right there? No. If I said you look pretty in black and white horizontals? No. 
Casey dropped her sledge and wiped the sweat from her brow. She hadn't had a sip and a swallow in a month, not a drop. Casey wondered how long she could make that stretch. You still hate me? Maybe. How can I get another chance, girl? Get me out of these chains, Balma said, and tucked loose hair back into her topknot. Balma had tried making a pick out of stone, tried breaking the chain with the sledge, tried having the guard accidentally run the links over. Promise? Sure, Kaze, I promise. Casey picked her teeth. Is that? Balma asked. It was. Casey was picking her teeth with a metal pick. Casey nodded at Balma's feet. Balma looked. Her ankle cuffs were open. So were Casey's. Effortful grunts and rock pounding echoed out of the men's quarry. How did you do that without me catching on? When you get to thinking too hard, you don't notice much. Did it about ten minutes back. And you kept talking? I like the company. What about him? Balma asked. The officer's back was turned. It always was. He didn't see Casey walk up. Didn't know he was about to get fired for losing a Ford and letting two prisoners escape. Didn't know he was going to get cracked on the skull till it happened. Casey started the engine. Balma got in. They looked at each other. Well, let's go, Kaze. Where? Home. Casey put one arm on the back of Balma's seat. Balma didn't stop her. And welcome back. Lover spats are maybe one of the finest forms of entertainment I can think of. Unless you're the one involved in the spat. And unless the makeup sex is really good. So hey, go get yourself another drink and let's talk about episode 193. That number may not mean a ton to you, but to Anna and I it's something pretty special. 100 episodes ago we ran Samantha Henderson's The Mermaid's Tea Party. It was one of the first stories we bought and scheduled as your new editors here at PodCastle. We'd worked with Rachel for a bit behind the scenes before that, helped select some stories, I started doing the feed cap and end caps well over 100 episodes ago, but 93 is when we fully took the reins, and it's been a lot of fun for us. We've got a lot more cool stuff planned for you all in the next few months. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. For taking us with you on your commutes or when you exercise or cooking dinner. Thanks for telling your friends and family about us. And most of all, thanks for letting us tell all of you stories week after week. Speaking of which, feedback this week is for James L. Sutter's Ties of Silver, read by V.O. Bloodfrost, a werewolf heist tale that took us into the ghettoized streets of the Thrope. Some people complained a little bit about the simplistic structure and the mispronunciation, but generally people got into it due to the sheer schutzpah Vash put into the reading. Yeah, I know, I mispronounced it, but that's because Vash's pronunciation is better. Ray Steele said, It had the style of a Sam Spade noir hard-boiled detective story, but it was more than just that with teeth and fur thrown on to make it fantasy. It had real heart and was fully fleshed out, at its core is a story about identity, community, and what prejudice will make members of an oppressed group do to conform, and what the cost of that can be. Ekin Black said, What a marvelous piece of reading it was as the story unwound. Can't say the whole werewolf thing is my topic of choice, but the amazing narration just blew me away. Cool! 
Thanks so much for those comments. We love reading what you all have to say. So drop on by forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money pays our authors, who take pride in brewing you the best in fantasy fiction week after week, whether it's legal or not. If you can't afford to donate, blog, tweet, tell a friend, write a review on iTunes about us, all of the above, thanks. We'd like to give a special shout-out to Ethan Solomita, our donor of the week. When he donated, Ethan asked us for one thing, more MK Hobson. Well, your wish is our command. I hope you enjoyed this one. I'd like to award you either the position of Chief Bootlegger and Shepherd of the Walking Stills we now have shambling around Podcastle, or, if you're feeling lucky, that Defense Against the Dark Arts professorship has come up again. For some reason, we can never seem to keep it filled. Either way, go on and get me a mug of that Podcast Sale moonshine we love so much. Thanks, Ethan. Well, that's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for letting all of us at Podcastle share another story with you. Remember, if you want to send us fan art, you can shoot it to us at editor at podcastle.org. We'll be back next time with a big first for us, some gross-out body humor. Or is it? Brought to you by Eliah Don Johnson. Until then, we at Podcastle find your moral poverty appalling. Good job. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Becca Fitzpatrick wrote, Say provoking again. Your mouth looks provocative when you do. Bodhisattvas. 